have the scriptures in hand still, if you would, and turn to the first letter, First uh, John. Reading verses 1 to 6. First John 4, verses 1 to 6. Before I hear, God's name is very much more for your blessing on the reading, hearing, and preaching of that word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, be long for you. We love your law, Lord. May it indeed be our meditation all day long. We're blessed. Lord, our gracious Father, whose love is revealed in your Son and whose word we love as the light of life. We pray, Lord, at this time now that you pour out your spirit as we hear your word, as we hear from you, that in meditating upon it, our hearts might be illumined by your spirit and our days filled with peace and joy. Lord, we do pray as we do so that you would place that word in our minds that we might think lightly, place in our hearts that we might love you, in new and true ways, Lord, we pray that you would touch our wills by your word. That we may submit our wills to your perfect will. And we would repent of our failure to do so. As we have, Lord, we praise you. That you cleanse out from us all that is unclean and be them to us. Lord, we pray, help us now as we hear and learn. And as your people, we come again before you. Ask and speak for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. First John chapter four. Starting verse one. This is your the word of God. <coughs> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The grass withers and the flowers fall. This word of the Lord indeed endures forever. May He add His blessing upon it as we hear a preach at this time. <clears throat> well, this is a glorious day today, the Lord's day. Uh, God has called us to worship indeed. He's called us to heaven itself. And our worship together is a foretaste of glory. Right? It is a pre-publication, if you will, of the heavenly, eternal life that awaits us. Intruding into time, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as a gift and blessing to us. And all we do, we desire to be 
scripture-based, right, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered in all that we do. We want to be faithful to our Lord as revealed as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And because of this, we have the exceeding joy and privilege to celebrate the incarnation and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every single Lord's Day, every time we meet. Because in Christ is life. Trusting in Him, entrusting ourselves to Him, believing the Gospel, there is life. Christ, of course, as you know, entered into His creation. He lived the perfect life and He earned heaven for those who have faith in Him. Right? Heaven must be earned. It's principle that's never gone away. And for those who have faith in Him, it was earned. Right? He was, as Paul says in Romans, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So every time the church meets as His people, it celebrates the incarnation and the resurrection of our Lord. Today, of course, is no exception. Uh, we hear the Gospel in the Word and we see the Gospel in the sacraments. <clears throat> Many in the world are focused particularly on the resurrection, especially today at this season. And we can be thankful whenever people focus on Christ. Remember, they're thinking about Jesus. It's an opportunity for us and need to speak truth in love about Christ, about the Gospel. Sadly, much of the focus on the resurrection around this time of year ends up being uh, insulting to Christ, insulting to His people. Many attacks against the truth of the historic resurrection come, and they come and they come. Uh, many in the 21st century deny that Jesus was God come in the flesh. And they certainly deny that Christ rose from the dead. Just like many deny these things in the first century. It goes asking the church to which John is writing in 1 John. John's been encouraging true believers and encouraging them in that church. And we've been encouraged as well, I trust, as we've gone through this. But what about that? What about the resurrection? Is it really important we affirm these things about Jesus? Can we just say, well, I'm not, as you may have heard, I'm not hostile. I'm not like denying these things. I just don't care. I don't believe them uh, if they're true or not. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't want to be a fanatic. Well, I'm going to look this morning at the central, altogether imperative truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that we can, as John said, says, Test the spirits. He says again in 1 John 4, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false, false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. <clears throat> now, John also, throughout his book, he's given the goal and the reason for all of this. Right. Those who trust, he said, in Jesus Christ are united to Him in His resurrection. And because of this, they have eternal life. Right. In chapter 3, the believers have passed, remember, from death to life. But that's eternal life because of the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, everything is keyed on that resurrection. We're going to see what Scripture says about this resurrection. And because of we're going to do so because when we do, we'll be equipped, as John says, to test the spirits uh, and any lies that come to us um, in our context, in our culture, um, 
and beyond. So we're going to look this morning briefly, um, primarily from 1 Corinthians 15, our New Testament reading, um, at the centrality of the resurrection, the centrality is core to our faith, the historicity of the resurrection, right? It really happened, truly happened in history. And then the absolute necessity of the resurrection. So the centrality, the historicity, and then the necessity of the resurrection. Right? God gave us his word. He gave us his word. The, the, the teachings of the apostles of Christ as they were carried along by the Spirit were confirmed, written down, and preserved for us by his holy design and plan. And he gives us his spirit. And so let's look at what he says about Jesus and about his resurrection. Because those who deny what the word says uh, have to contend with uh, these things, right? They have God to contend with. And we want to speak about God, but it's true. We don't need to to wonder about what happened to Jesus three days after he was murdered at the hands of wicked men. We don't have to uh, make something up or uh, be confused about that, right? It says very clearly, he rose from the dead. And you know, some people don't like that. They don't think the resurrection is even important. That it matters at all. Some think that Jesus, of course, he wrote this as just a great moral teacher. And it's his teaching that's good and the important stuff. The rest of it doesn't really matter. You have to believe it. Was well, that true? Right? Did, did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? He did. He claimed himself to be divine. And someone is not a great moral teacher if he thinks he's God and he's not God. The claim alone isn't unique per se. right? History is full of people who have uh, thinking they were God or they were the Messiah or the Son of God. We can think many throughout history, even just in the 90s, which uh, are farther away than I think in my memory, but it seems like it was just yesterday, right? In the 90s, uh, the branch Davidians, remember David Koresh, he was the Messiah. The thing is, though, about David Koresh, or all of them throughout history, they have one thing in common. They're all still dead. Augustine, St. Augustine, said long ago of Jesus, he is either God or he is mad. He's either God or he is mad, meaning insane. If he is not God, he is not good. And all the moral teachings that people want without the resurrection is based on the claim that he was God. <clears throat> he was God. Bible teaching about the resurrection is not complex, it's not cloudy, it's not unclear. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is central. It's central, it's at the core, it's at the heart of the faith. It's of supreme importance. 1 Corinthians 15, again, verses 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And this is a good summary of the Gospel, right? These verses 1 to 5. Right? They're a good summary. 
It's good for us to be somebody asks, what is the gospel? What is the core of the message of Christianity? Read those four verses to them, right? It's a good summary. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The body of resurrection is one of the prime elements of the gospel. And you see it there in verse 3. It is of first importance. <clears throat> right? It means the foremost, the most important, the most prominent. Paul saying the resurrection is the very essence of the gospel. And in verse 2, we see scripture emphasizes this. Right? Now it reminds you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand in verse 2, right? And by which you are being saved. You see, without the resurrection of Christ, it's not possible to be saved at all. Some people say things, and I saw this just a couple days ago. They argue. You don't need to believe in the bodily resurrection to believe in the resurrection, right? Have you heard some of these kinds of accusations? Like, I mean, uh, you can learn from it, give it benefit, even be saved, even if it's not true. And by the way, bodily resurrection is kind of redundant. Right? Bodily re- resurrection means to rise again, to, to uh, a rising up. And for the person who doesn't think it's important or didn't happen, they forfeited the whole thing. They forfeited everything. They distorted the gospel and replaced it with something that is man-made, derived from man's own machinations and his mind. And the gospel of the Christian church depends on the resurrection. Jesus, uh, rather, Paul pulls no punches here. And so if the church doesn't, if a church doesn't affirm and proclaim and confess the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, it's what? It's not a Christian church. So the first thing Paul highlights here is the centrality of the resurrection. The resurrection is central to the faith. Scripture says that the resurrection is core to the truth, to the faith. And it says that it really happened in history for real. And then in verses 5 to 11, right, we see Paul isn't just making this up, right, as some would, 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 would imagine that he is to encourage or to give some poetic imagery or conceptual point about becoming made new. This is the kind of things that we hear in culture, in the non-believing world. Paul gives the history Right? And he brings witnesses to bear. Right? It's central to everything, and it actually factually happened in history. Right? Verse, uh, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> he says, And then he appeared to Cephas, uh, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Have you ever noticed this about what Paul says here? It's not a once upon a time kind of thing, right? It's not, it's not a fairy tale. Have you ever thought about this though? How Paul says that all these people saw Jesus, more than 500, and he says most of whom are still alive. Why would he do that? Why would he add this detail? Because he's saying what? He's saying... Hey, go find them. Go ask them what I'm saying. Listen to what they saw. Let them tell you. They're out there and you, they can confirm what I'm saying. And then he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
right, as one untimely born. Right, it's talking about a premature birth. Paul was ravaging the church, you recall. Ravaging. All he cared about the church was what? Destroy it. And he's given testimony here to the truth of the resurrection. Right? And he said, this is who I was. See the change in me. After I saw the risen Christ. After Christ got hold of me. And this is a powerful testimony to you. That Christ had been raised from the dead. So Paul's putting himself forward as evidence of the resurrection. Because of the change in him. That they clearly would have known. And the fact that Paul is a Christian, an apostle, can't be explained except for the miracle of a new heart and divinely given faith to this individual. Paul is transformed. And for him, that was powerful proof of the resurrection. The resurrection is not optimal, uh, optional, right? It's not optional, something that's added on. It's definitive of the Christian faith. The resurrection is central. The resurrection is historically true. And then we see in verses 12 to 19, the futility if it, if it is not true. Right? It's all or nothing. Right? Paul doesn't weasel around. He doesn't use weasel words. And we shouldn't weasel around or be shy about it as well, about the resurrection. Everything is at stake. We should ask the question, we should ask the question what do we lose if we reject or deny the resurrection of Christ? What do we lose? And some people think, as I said earlier, well, you just lose the resurrection. Right? And this is just foolish. Because all through Christ's teaching, He's teaching about His resurrection. What do we lose if we deny the resurrection of Christ? Paul says what? You lose everything. You lose everything. He says that if it's not true, then we are liars. We bear false witness. If the resurrection is not true, we lose everything and our faith is what? Worthless. And this is totally contrary to the idea that we hear that you can be a Christian without the Christ. You can take the morality without the man, Jesus. You can leave him. Just take what he taught. It doesn't matter. Paul says, no, you can't. No, you cannot. Without the resurrection, you have nothing. He says, if you do that, you're just, uh, as the phrase uh, goes, whistling past the graveyard, right? pretending that it's not there, trying to massage the truth, making up your own reality to help you feel good and to justify your rebellion and rejection of God and His Word. And brothers and sisters, I hope you feel the weight of this. This is extremely dangerous. And actually it's terrifying that people do this. Because they're acting like children. And they don't like something. Right? You've seen this maybe in yourself, maybe your kid, remember, uh, but maybe uh, uh, in your own children. Right? When the children are mad at mom because uh, she makes them eat their veg vegetables. And they close their eyes and they try to make mom go away because they're mad at her. People do this with God all the time in many ways. They just want things their way. And they think that they can just deny God or put him out of mind and he'll go away. But he's not going away. In fact, he's coming again. And accept that until they throw themselves at his mercy and grace and take the rescue that alone comes from trusting in Christ, the risen Christ, they remain in their sins, he says. And Paul says that apart from the resurrection, it's like you're standing in quicksand because you have no foundation. He says, in fact, you're living a lie. 
Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Now why does he say that? <clears throat> Think of all that Paul went through for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. All the beatings and the lashings and the stonings, right? The scarred body of the apostle told the story. If Christ had not been raised, then Paul was certainly pitiful, right? What a waste of all of that. But think of yourselves, right? And your sacrifices and your commitment and the things that you've gone through in your lives. The things you've endured or been subject to because of your commitment to Jesus. Paul says that when you grasp the gospel and you taste the sweetness of the Savior, those burdens become what? Become blessing. Become a blessing. Everything depends on the resurrection. Without it, our faith is futile. The enemies of God have been attacking Christianity, been attacking the resurrection for 2,000 years, and it still stands undefeated. Why is that? Why did it hold all the scrutiny and all the attacks of all the years? It's because it's true. Because it's true. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, he confessed. Right? On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then in verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. <clears throat> the first fruits. Perhaps in this culture, you understand what that means. Of course, if you were raised in the city, you have no idea what that means. The first fruits, right? It means the first part, the sample of the crop. And that first part shows the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop, what it will be like. It also shows that the final fruits are guaranteed. They will come. Our lives will pattern our Savior. It's a principle we all must understand, we all must believe and affirm and accept and rejoice in. Our lives will pattern the life of our Savior. Right? And what is that pattern? The pattern is suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. It's not glory here and then glory in heaven. It's suffering, then glory. It's blessed with Jesus. And as He is raised and resurrected glory, we too will be raised. That's the promise of Scripture. And the glorious thing is that we are already now shared in the resurrected, resurrected life and power of Christ. He calls us to come out and to come forward and to newness of life and to know Him in His resurrection power. And it's because of His resurrection, as the first fruits that we have this great confidence that death has been defeated in the death of Christ. And we have what? Therefore, great confidence that He'll one day raise us up from the dust of the earth and give us resurrected bodies. Right? The glorious promise at the end of Scripture, book of Revelation, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more infection, no more uh, struggle or tears or mourning forever. What a glorious promise that is, brothers and sisters. And the more you suffer in this life, the more you appreciate and long for that to be a reality. And it's coming and it will come. But brothers and sisters, if there is no resurrection, we are still in our sins. We remain in our sins. Right? Back in verse 17, he said this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Right? No resurrection, no salvation. 
what he's saying. And think of what Paul is talking about here uh, in terms of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? Paul was steeped in the scriptures. Right? <clears throat> he was the, uh, the rabbi par excellence, right? He knew his scriptures. And you remember in the Old Testament sacrificial system what took place way back then. Right? Once a year, after extremely careful preparations, the high priest would go to offer sacrifice for sins in the Holy of Holies. And as the priest worked and moved throughout the different parts of the temple in this task, the people could hear him because there were bells on his robes. The people weren't allowed to go in, even to watch. They could hear, they had to stay outside as the priest offered this sacrifice for their sins. And they could hear the priests. They could hear the bells and know that he was still alive. And this gave them hope, right? Hope. That God was what? Accepting that sacrifice and not rejecting it or taking out the priest. People had hope. They had hope. They knew what they deserved. What did they deserve? Punishment for their sins. But they had hope as they heard the priest making sacrifice in the inner place, pouring out the blood of the sacrifice on that altar. And remember at the end, after all of this, the priest would come out. It was done. He would raise his hands and he would give the benediction. That the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Because of what had been done, right? this is the ironic benediction. It was a proclamation that Yahweh, the Lord God, had accepted the sacrifice that was made. The sacrifice was accepted. And their sins were declared forgiven. And this is what happens in the resurrection, right? Remember the disciples in their dismay? <clears throat> they were rattled and depressed. And for three days they heard nothing from their high priest. And they assumed that he was dead. Because he was dead. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And do you remember the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples when he appeared to them? When he appeared to them on the evening of that first day of the week. And he stood among them. And remember what he said first? In John 20, it says, and on the first, oh, I'm sorry, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace, shalom be with you. Right? The sacrifice had been accepted. And as you trust him, your sins are forgiven. And he brings you new life. And we end where we began. Right? If he has not risen, then none of this is true. And we are left in our sins before a holy God, a holy and just God. But we confess what? We confess what? <clears throat> I believe that on the third day Jesus rose again from the dead. And what a wonderful blessing. Not only to believe that this is true of Jesus, but personally know that Jesus of whom this is true. And knowing this Jesus has become our Savior. The resurrection is the promise of Scripture, brothers and sisters. The resurrection is everything. Because of it, we are given various benefits. Right? We talk about the, the, the benefits of redemption, the benefits of Christ keeping the covenant before the Lord for us. And one of those benefits is what? It's the declaration 
of righteousness before a holy God. You are righteous before Him as you believe in Him, as you are united to Him in faith. And because He has been raised and overcame death, we now share in His righteousness that He obtained for us. Right? We think about, you know, how can I be certain that I'm righteous before the Father? It's a question as we talked about a lot. We struggle with sometimes, some more than others, especially with the lingering, remaining sin in our lives that clings so closely to our flesh. There's a correlation, you see. You're standing before God, your righteousness, and the resurrection. And so when the devil, or even when your own heart harasses you, and he asks, are you really righteous? Is that true? What do you say? What do you say? Well, you respond with a question. And you ask right back, is the tomb empty? Did Jesus rise again? And that is your answer, brothers and sisters. The objective reality of a historical truth that happened. There's the, the, uh, the benefit of that, the declaration of the truth and the assurance that we have. And then there's the benefit of growing in holiness, right? Making uh, the Spirit, making us more and more like Jesus in our daily lives as we die to sin and are made alive in Him by Christ's power. <clears throat> His resurrection, how we also we are also already raised to new life. You feel like you're just grinding away at life sometimes. Like you're just grinding away in the dregs of daily life. Not feeling very holy at all. What is the answer to those feelings? It's to trust that Jesus has already made you alive. So live out of that life, following him wherever he calls you. And then lastly, there's the benefit, of course the blessed glorification that we will encounter, that we will experience, right? That final entrance into God's heavenly and holy presence in eternity, removed apart forever, eradicated from sin. And I, I know sometimes the thought comes. I know, sometimes we think, even us who believe, this, this seems like pie in the sky. You've heard that silly phrase, pie in the sky? One of my professors used to say, give me more of this pie. Give me more of it. But we think of that sometimes. It's just, just uh, thoughts dearly out of the, in, in the world. right? I'm struggling to make ends meet. I'm struggling. My job isn't quite right. My kids, I have to raise them. I have meals to plan. I have house cleaning to do. Whatever it might be. But in those times, brothers and sisters, remember, Christ's resurrection is the sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Because he was raised, he will raise us as well. Because he was glorified in God's presence, I will be raised as well. That's what we look to. We praise God for this truth and this reality. Without the resurrection, the weight of your sins will crush you. But with it, we are assured that all that Christ did is declared ours in our justification, is applied in our sanctification, and we will experience it in our just, in our glorification. So remember that this week as you go back into the world, back down from this meeting with the Lord into your world. Remember that. Remember these truths, brothers and sisters. And remember that He was delivered up for our trespasses as He was raised for our justification. Let us praise Him that all that needed to be done has been done. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Christ in securing our redemption. Lord, we praise you that you sought in your plan to create that this take place, and that Christ has worked this reality for us. He's accomplished our redemption. And we praise you that the Spirit applies this to us in time individually continues to grow us to be our own conformism. Lord, help us to believe these truths that we read. Grow us by them. Give us strength. Lord, as we continue to live our lives for Him or for Your glory. But as You would be with us all, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.